You may not realize this, because church work is not what you do all week long. But church marketing is big business. If I could tell you the pile of junk that goes immediately in the trash can of direct mail pieces that I get every week, you'd be surprised at all the money that's wasted soliciting things that I didn't know I needed until you mailed mailed it to me. There are phone calls every week of numerous people who are calling, hawking their religious wares because it will turn your church around. Emails, direct mail advertising, phone calls from ministry experts trying to make a quick dollar. Several weeks ago, in the same week, spoke with a man who said he guaranteed that the number one way to grow your church was through your Sunday school ministry. Two days later, spoke with a man who said, man, Sunday school is a relic of a bygone era. All the churches that are growing are doing small groups. What do you do? All these competing ideas, all these resources that your church has no hope unless you pay $199.99 to get this program. And the truth is, in our day and age, there are more resources for the church than at any time in the history of the church. And there's never been more confusion over what a church is to be and do. Interesting times. There are even (coughs) subscription services where other preachers will write your sermons for you for a nominal fee. That doesn't sound like ministry. That sounds like plagiarism to me. Maybe I'm just old school. And so there's no shortage of experts telling you this and telling you that in what you need to do in church. And I find that to be a terrible contrast with what God's Word says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I invite you to turn there in your copy of the Scriptures And I want to speak today on the issue of what are the resources for a God-glorifying church. We talked last week about how the church is God's idea. There weren't a group of men that got together and said, Hey, the church really sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. The church, like marriage, was God's idea. And this week, I want to continue on in the same passage, moving down to verses 14 through 21 to talk about resources for a God-glorifying church. And so as we read it, I encourage you to listen to it with that filter in mind. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, 
and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God wants the church to most ultimately glorify Him. It says it right there in verse 21. He wants the church to most ultimately glorify Him. And we believe that He has given us everything that we need to accomplish our mission. We don't need a marketing strategy. We don't need a Facebook page. We need what God has given to us far more than we need what man tries to sell to us. And we must increasingly learn to make use of His resources that He has provided. And He begins in this passage by issuing a challenge. Our first point this morning is that instead of being used as a Christmas list, we should appreciate the resource of prayer as a means of glorifying God. Now listen to that. That that first point is worded particularly for a reason. I think we would all be ashamed to admit how often we use prayer as a wish list. God, help me through this. Let me pass that test. Help me to have a good day. I need to feel better. Uh, Please deal with an annoying coworker. The question I have for you, is that God-glorifying prayer? Or is that self-comforting prayer? As if God is a genie in a bottle, ready to do our three wishes for the day. And here's what I find fascinating. As Paul is writing about the church, his very first reaction is to pray. In verse 14. Verse 14 continues on from everything that's happened before it in chapter 3. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. When he thinks about the church, when he thinks about God's plan to redeem people, the very first resource that Paul turns to is prayer. He says, church at Ephesus, I can't be there with you, so I've written you this letter, and I so want God to do in you what he said he wants to do, that I'm going to pray for you, and I'm actually going to write it into my letter. He believes that there's power in prayer, and he's praying for the church to have the strength that God intends for it to have, and he turns to prayer as the resource for accomplishing this. Now, I don't know if you watch National Geographic or any of these kind of cultural shows, but he says, I bow before the Father. Jewish men don't bow in prayer. They stand in prayer. And I think what has happened for Paul is is God has pulled back the veil on his cosmic plan of redemption and said, the tool for accomplishing this is the church. The plan from the man who made it before time existed. I think Paul is overwhelmed that he has the opportunity to be the ambassador, the emissary of this new work that God had planned long ago, that he simply can't stay on his feet when he prays anymore. He's so overwhelmed with the part that he gets to play in God's cosmic redemption. 
And so in contrast to ourselves, who look at prayer as chiefly a way to get out of trouble, or a way to obtain something that we don't have, Paul's view of prayer is an opportunity to glorify God. And so as you consider your prayer life and your prayer priorities this morning, I just ask, do you glorify God in your praying? Do you pray for the things that He wants? Or do you simply pray for the things that you want? Church people, sometimes those are two different things. Sometimes those things get a lot closer together, don't they? Sometimes we pray not for God to save someone so that they get out of a mess, but just for God to save them. That's the end. That's not a means to an end. It's the end. So do you pray for what he wants? Do you pray for what you want? And I'm here to tell you that prayer can indeed be a great resource for glorifying God in your life and in the life of the church. And here's the challenge. If you want to grow in God-glorifying prayer, pay attention to our second point. See how Paul establishes priorities in prayer. And I'll, I'll make a, uh, a little plug here. You guys have something in your bulletin. Uh, this little thing, I'd encourage you to put it on your refrigerator. Put it somewhere where you have, you, you have access to it. It lays out our dates, our titles, and our text for all of our sermons going up to Easter. And the reason I do that is uh, there's a little joke sometimes about ministers only working one day a week. I work two days a week this week because I needed to get this done. Um, it, it's important. It's like planning a meal. If you just kind of walk into your cupboard and see what you got, you're not going to cook a whole lot. But if you stop to think about where you're going to go. Uh, Charles Spurgeon made a... Uh, he just was a zinger when it came to quotes. And he said, the reason that most preaching is boring is because most churches don't pray for their preachers. Dang. So, use that to inform your prayer life about the life of our church. When we talk about uh, the church in our preaching, uh, the reason we do that is it allows you to be informed in how you pray for where we're going. So in the first point, we talk about prayer as a resource for being the kind of church that is God-glorifying. Number two, I say this, we must learn to derive great practical value from the deep doctrinal truths of the personhood of God. We have to learn to derive practical value, in essence, from the theology of who God is. You see, uh, the Trinity is kind of not optional. Pastor Will was talking about a conversation he had for three hours with a Jehovah's Witness on Friday. What marks them off from not being Christian? Their doctrine of the Trinity. And so the problem is when we think about the deep truth about who God is, we know like the, the Trinity is like the entrance exam into the Christian faith. You have to believe in the Trinity. But it's almost like once we're done with the entrance exam, we don't ever think about the Trinity ever again. 
We're like, all right, I got to believe this in order to be a Christian. And then we live the rest of the entirety of our lives without ever thinking about the fact that God is a trinity of persons. That's a problem. Because it's not irrelevant and it's not impractical. Did you see the trinity in the passage that we just read? When we talk about how Paul prays, he prays, let me kind of coin a term, he prays trinitinarianly. Don't ask me how to spell it, just believe it. He, he prays trinitin- trinitinarianly. <clears throat> I don't know if I got that right. You'll have to edit that out of the CD. So, um, Look in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the... Father. Verse 16. He says, I I pray that he, the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Verse 17. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As Paul prays, for the Ephesian church, and by implication, prays for every Bible-believing church that has ever existed. He prays, grateful to, to, to the Father for His wisdom in creating the church. He prays to the Spirit to pour out His power. And He prays for Christ's indwelling love to inhabit the hearts of His people. That sounds a little different than your prayers? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Wisdom of the Father, power of the Spirit, indwelling of the Son. One of them is steak, and one of those is hot dogs. You can figure out which one of those they are. Let me apply this here really practically. Last week, we had the incredible privilege to baptize five adults. What a great thing. I hope that as the church, you understand that your responsibility as a church member, if you are indeed a member of this church, you are a part of our faith family. So you have now added five new people to your family. I hope that over the course of the week, you have prayed for these new believers. You have said, God, thank you for them, for the Nemtudas, uh, for Cecily, for Malia, for Philip. That name, name by name, you went through the list and you prayed for them. Now, there are, there's a whole list of things that you could pray for new believers. We come up with a page full. Did the person of the Trinity and the power that he affects into a person's life make your list? Was God a resource for a growing Christian? Or did you just pray for them to have a good week? When we're talking about new believers, when we're talking about the life of the church, it it seems so often that we honor God with our lips. We don't really see the practical value of who God is, how He demonstrates His power, and we don't really look at God as a resource for growing His church. We look to Lifeway. We look to the state convention. We look to the local association, but we don't look to God. We don't look to His power. We don't don't pray 
grateful for his wisdom, needful of his power, desirous of his indwelling son. So I, I would say this. There is no program or principle that can do for you what God can't do. And regardless of what kind of church you find yourself to be, if a church sets out to lift God high and exalt His name, no matter what kind of stripe of church it is, traditional, contemporary, meets on Saturday night, meets on Thursday night, meets in a school, meets in a church building, if they have got God right, they'll be successful in glorifying God no matter what kind of programming they have. That's a good thing. Now, we've moved very quickly through these first two points. And that's because our third point is a little bit longer, but it also ties everything together here. So point number three. We should realize that the tremendous gospel products that we so desire only come to us through prayer and through God's person. And so as we look at verse 16 on, let's see five great byproducts that God produces in our life. And the first that I see, a resource for a God-glorifying church, is first, strength in the inner man. Look at verse 16. He prays that He, God, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now admittedly, especially in a Baptist church, and we start talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. Goodness, the flowers may fall off the Lord's Supper table here. Dangerous territory. And the truth is, we get sidetracked with a very small percentage of debated charismatic practices. Let me suggest to you that the Spirit is much more involved in everyday sanctification than He is in the wild and mystical excesses of our churches. And so I ask this question. When he talks about strength in the inner man, have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen someone who has Holy Spirit strength in the inner man? I have. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Perhaps you've seen someone lose a lifelong spouse. Terrible thing to suffer. But despite what from a human perspective is a tragedy, they have invisible and unseen a hidden artesian well of joy. And you go to comfort them. And you are more blessed in your effort to comfort them than you can ever possibly offer to them. That is inner spiritual strength. Now here's the problem. Inner spiritual strength is most clearly demonstrated how in how we suffer. So do you want inner spiritual strength this morning? Oh, yes, you do. You just might not like the process by which you get it. So Christ has given us an immeasurable treasure. He gives us the gospel. He gives us forgiveness of sins, redemption, sanctification. And Paul is here praying 
for God to send his spirit to strengthen our soul so that this immense and glorious treasure that God has given to us, we don't carry it in a paper bag of a soul. He says, Lord, let's, get a, let's make it a lockbox. Let's make it a safe. Let's make it something more than just a weak paper bag soul. Give this person inner strength so that even in the most difficult circumstance, they shine. They're not easily torn. They're sturdy. That's one of the resources a church needs to glorify God. Is individual people, members of the church, that are strong on the inside. That doesn't mean hard-headed. It means Holy Spirit strength. Secondly, a great byproduct that God produces in us by himself and through prayer is a realization of Christ's presence. Look at verse 17. He's praying for strengthening in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A byproduct of having inner strength is that we make our heart a happy throne room for the King of Kings. Notice what it says here. Our passage talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. It doesn't say that Christ is a sojourner traveling through and he's just going to spend a night or two. You're not hosting Jesus temporarily. You are inviting him in to come and live forever. Now, we've just gotten through with the holidays. If you're like most, you've had visitors. You were so excited to see them come. And you were probably more excited to see them go. Let me ask you this. When we talk about resources for a God-glorifying church, is it essential for us to, on a daily level, experience the presence of Christ? Friends, you, you have to give him the keys. He's not just coming for a night or two. Not if you're a Christian. He's coming to dwell forever. And you should desire that. You should desire for all the nooks, crannies, and crevices of your life to be exposed to his light. Because he'll clean house, but he will do it gently, and he will do it lovingly. And so when we talk about experiencing Christ's presence, is he a stranger passing by, or does he have keys to the house? If your experience of Christ's presence is Sunday morning, to Sunday morning, friends, don't let Jesus just be a visitor. Invite him in to stay. Let him dwell. Don't be content with a weekly meeting with Jesus because Jesus desires a heart home. Number three, one of the resources that God gives us is discovering the depths of divine love. You see this in verse 17 and 18, continuing on so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, 
which surpasses knowledge. Do you notice the mystery there? He's praying for us to know what surpasses knowledge. I'm not the sharpest arrow in the quiver. That sounds like a challenge. To know what he says is completely and utterly, totally unknowable. We know in part. We can love what we know. But you're never going to be able to exhaust a study of divine love. Now, I love this. Uh, he, he mixes his metaphors here. He says he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith so that we can be rooted and grounded in love. Now, rooted is an agricultural term. What well, has roots? Plants. Trees. He's saying, I want love to so blossom in your life, to be rooted. Why do you have roots? To establish health to establish permanence, deep roots. He wants love, God's love, to be so rooted into our life that it fill, if our life is a garden, that that love blossoms up and fills up our whole garden. It's an agricultural term. He says rooted and grounded. Grounded isn't an architectural term. It isn't an agricultural term. It's an architectural term. What do you ground? It's a foundation for a building. So he's saying, not only do I want you to be rooted, filled up with God's love, I want you to be built upon a foundation of God's love. I want it to be the support of everything that you do in your life. Think about this. If kids grow up not knowing the love of their parents, might there be some issues when they become an adult? Might their foundation be a little shaky? Kids who know that they are loved by their parents, have a great foundation. That is one area where they are not insecure. Friends, if we understand God's love for us as his children, why are there so many insecure Christians? I call them daisy Christians. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He demonstrated it in the cross. He's given you his people to encourage you. Be rooted and grounded in his love. Now, I love this. A a couple things just to comment on here. Did you notice how he said we actually contemplate this unknowable love? He says in verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend how? With all the saints. With all of them. Now, on the surface level, I think what he's saying is, all the saints who have ever existed. Everyone who has ever named the name of Christ knows, uh, comprehends, at least to some degree, the love of Christ. I think that there's something even a little bit deeper and more implicit here. What he's saying is, when all the saints of Northside Baptist Church get together, we should be able to comprehend God's love better together than we can on our own. Now, I don't know if we've got any church members that are out playing golf this morning. Can you worship God on the golf course on Sunday morning? Absolutely. Is it a fitting substitute for corporate worship? Not a chance. Every time we get together as God's people, whether it's Sunday school, whether it's worship, whether it's small groups, whether it's a Tuesday Bible study and potluck, whether it's... Um, Wednesday prayer meeting and Bible study. 
God's people getting together should be a catalyst for us celebrating how God has shown his love to us, how he has been merciful, how he has been gracious, how he has been faithful, and we're not to hoard these blessings to ourselves. We are to comprehend with all the saints that God has placed around us this mystery, this depth of love that God gives to us. Divine love is certainly worthy of our contemplation. I just don't know that we think about it enough. And so I love this quote about the love of God. Listen to this. Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. It goes back as far as God did. Because God is eternal, his love can have no end. Because God is infinite, his love can have no limit. Because God is holy, his love is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because God is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. His love is big. And one of the resources for a God-glorifying church is discovering in new ways the depths of God's love for his people. So if you want to know more about the love of God, where do you look? Where do you look if you want to grow in your appreciation for God's love? Well, creation. He made you, didn't he? I'm grateful for that. The incarnation. He had to love us to condescend to the point of being made like a man. His teaching. He loved us to show us the way. His cross, his resurrection, his ascension where he prays for believers every day. The love of God is not difficult to comprehend for the person who looks for it. The fourth resource, being filled up with God. He says the end result of all of this knowledge of love is, verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I'll just confess to you, I have no idea what that means. I have an idea. What does it mean to be filled up to all the fullness of God? God's fullness is infinite. How can I, a finite being, hold the fullness of God? No idea. The thought here is cumulative and progressive. As we receive inner strength from the Spirit, as we experience Christ's presence dwelling in our hearts as we uh, have a deeper sense of the deep, deep love of God, we end up being filled up with God. His Spirit, His Son, His love, all of that working in our life equals up to filling up to the fullness of God. What a superlative statement. One writer said it this way, Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched across the sky. That immensity of who God is, is what he wants to pour into the life of every believer. You and me, 
the majesty of that thought. Fifth, and lastly, we see that one of the resources for a God-glorifying church is enriched, powerful, and glorifying worship. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just a few things here to note. Paul is saying in this, these verses that one of the greatest resources we have for being a God-glorifying church is our worship of the triune God. Praying to and praising Him for these things that He is producing in our life. Spiritual power. Sensing the presence of God. Knowing the depth of His love. That when those things happen, they ratchet up our worship. Because we indeed have so much to be grateful for. I have yet to have one of those ministry experts sell me a program that makes God's people worship well. How do you do that? Now, I don't care what the cost is. I would pay for that. If I could pay for any of these byproducts, who would pay to feel Christ's presence consistently? Would you pay money for that? I would. You know what stinks? You don't have enough money. Cost the blood of Christ. I'm not going to put a dollar amount on that. He's saying here that when we realize these things, it makes our worship passionate. In his worship, Paul's saying something really incredible. He's saying, God, wow, look at all this stuff you want for us. Spiritual strength, knowing Christ's presence, understanding the depth of his love. There's just no way I can do this. But did you see what he says in verse 20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think according to the power that works within us. He's saying, God, wow, look at all the stuff that you have for us. In our worship, we are expressing our dependence and our trust in you to do the things in our life that you say you want to see. That's worship. Can you conjure up spiritual strength? Can you conjure up, can you uh, replicate the presence of Christ? Absolutely not. It is God sovereignly moving by His Spirit and His people that produces these things. And Paul says, I know I need these things, and I'm so grateful you're on my team because you will provide the very things that you say you want me to have. Worship, just like the Christian life, begins with trust. And we have the audacity to believe that God will accomplish in the lives of His people these things. One of the ways that our worship works itself out, according to this passage, is for a very specific outcome. He says, verse 21, to him. 
be the glory in the church. Not the pastor, not the deacons, not the oldest living church member, not the person with the perfect attendance pin, not the stewardship campaign, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory in the church. Regardless of what we like and don't like about our church, to Jesus be the glory. Because if Jesus gets the glory, I'm fine with whatever happens. Because it's about Him, not about me, and not about we. The glory of Christ. And I love this. This is just a passion of mine personally. Instead of being an unreliable and troubling resource, Paul is saying here that theology leads to doxology. Think about what he's talked about. Our triune God. We got kind of deep in our content matter this morning. And as he's thinking about God and the things that God produces in our life, he's thinking theologically. He's thinking deeply. And practically, what has that resulted in? Worship. Theology drives doxology. Doctrine drives devotion. There's no, it's not like you, I'm a thinking Christian and I'm a worshiping Christian. No, Jesus said those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. There's no divide. Doctrine should make us better worshipers. Our theology should make us more worshipful. So if I had the power in myself to do these things, if I could bless y'all, boom, spirit high five, and I could give you these things, I would do it if I liked you. What would you pay for these gospel byproducts in your life? I'd drain the bank account. I'd ask the chair of our finance committee, listen, I don't care about the lights. I want inner spiritual strength for our people. Here's the thing that's so odd, is this whole conversation about being appropriating resources for being a God-glorifying church. (laughs) It's not a program. It's not a three-step deal. It's not a nine-week class. It's not a, a pledge card. God is glorified in the church when the church, the people, appropriate the resources that God has said he has for you. It's not a program. We oftentimes, when we think about the church, we think about it as a building, as a location. The church is a people. Can you dream with me if our people lived this kind of life, what kind of church we would have? Here's the great news. You don't need to come see me to get any of this stuff. 
I'll have it. Don't have the inventory, not in stock. I might have it personally in fleeting glimpses, but God will give it to his people. He will give it to you. He wants to give it to you. And as a church, friends, whatever our programming is, we have to build these kind of people. These things need to be our priorities. Regardless of what our schedule looks like throughout the week, may everything we say and do and plan and pray about seek to replicate these kinds of things in God's church because it's clearly what he wants. So friends, as we pray this morning and as we have our invitation, we'll be a little unorthodox, maybe a little out of the box this morning. If you just need to come and pray this morning, you go, I got no spiritual strength. If life is a video game, my spiritual strength meter is flashing. It's on empty. You don't need me except for encouragement. Come right here. Pray to God. So, Lord, I need it. I don't, I don't feel God's presence. Maybe every once in a while in worship I do. But personally, I, throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, I don't feel God's presence. Guys, God wants to give this to you. Some of you may need to make a public commitment to the Lord. You're, you're, you've not publicly confessed Christ before men. You've not publicly identified yourself with a local church. You need to join a church. If that's where you're at, please come. There's no secret initiation rite. We don't, you know, have a secret handshake. We're going to talk to you about the gospel and how God has designed our lives to work together as a family of faith. I will trust the Spirit to apply this message to your life, however it needs to be. Would you pray for me, please? Lord, we thank you for not just telling us what we need, but being the kind of God who will give us everything that you tell us that we need. You are a great, gracious, and giving God. Lord, make us beggars for the things that you tell us we need. Help us to not be so religious. Help us not to be so proud that we're unwilling to beg you for the things that you say you would give to us. So Lord, as we sing, and as your spirit moves upon this congregation, work in our hearts, we pray. Amen.